You're not real. You're dead. I am. I killed you with my own... <gasps> oh, you need not remind me. It was the crowning moment of our time together. But that was then, and this is now. I have a favor to ask. Our beloved planet is dying. Slowly. Silently. Painfully. Can you bear to see the planet suffer? Cloud. Greetings, mortals, and welcome to another episode of A Podcast But Evil. I'm Dan Oster. I'm Doug Leaf. And today it's just Doug and Dan in the studio. <laughs> Old school. The way we used to do it. No guess. <laughs> back in the old days. Yes. Way back in... You know, like about a month ago. Yeah, June <laughs> or so. Before we get too deep into the podcast, just a reminder, if you enjoy this show and you've been listening, we would love you to head over to uh, Apple Podcasts, drop us a rating, not even a review. Just go ahead and click that fifth star or, you know, whatever you feel comfortable clicking. And that really helps us out. It helps us get out to more listeners. And if you'd like to leave a review, we love those as well. We like to read them on the air. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we love talking to anyone who's listening. All two of you. Uh, at, no, I, <laughs> I shouldn't, shouldn't. Hi, Mom. I, hi, Dad. Yeah, they tell I'm you never kidding. to do they, that. I'm, no, just, I shouldn't. I'm just kidding. They don't listen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's not even really true. We actually do have a nice discussion going with several of our listeners. It's been a nice discovery in doing this podcast. And the stats show that uh, there's people listening all over in different parts of the world, which is awesome. It's so cool to know that, like, hey, someone in you know the UK or Australia downloaded this, and we hope you like it. Yeah, it's really just a, a faulty defense mechanism to be like, no one's listening, we suck. But that's just not true. People are listening, and it's really cool. So if you'd like to talk to us directly, reach out to us at Podcast But Evil on Twitter. And Doug, who's kind of our social media manager, will probably jump on that. And sometimes I swing by and, and screw it up. Uh, so let's talk about our topic for today, which is kind of an, un oh, an unusual one for us. I'm uh, so excited for this one. <laughs> Edge of my seat. See, this is one when we were in the lab cooking up, uh, you know, topics. Sometimes it's like, oh man, this is going to be a big audience favorite, like we did Walter White last week. And other times, one of us is like, I'm super passionate about this, so I'm going to put all my chips in and say, let's do this. Uh, and so that was me this week. I can't um, say no to Doug. I can't say no to those puppy dog eyes. He really <laughs> wanted to do this one, and he convinced me. He's like, Dan, there is a fan base here for this character in this series. Trust me. So if you guys don't show up in droves, if you don't flood our Twitter, Doug's going to suffer for it. It'll be just like in high school when I wanted to talk about this character. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we're talking about Sephiroth, uh, the the big bad from the video game Final Fantasy VII, our first video game baddie. And uh, I wanted to do this one because it's, uh, you know, we haven't done a video game villain yet. And there's obviously lots to choose from. And I know, Dan, this is this is interesting because we're both lifelong gamers, but this one's a blind spot for you. You've never played this game. Yeah, I wanted to do the wall from Breakout or one of the right. Space Invaders. <laughs> the octopus from Space Invaders. Uh, no, this one's a real blind spot for me. I do not have a lot of experience with JRPGs, I guess they're called, right? Japanese right. role-playing games. Uh, it is a thriving popular genre. 
and you can tell because you can tell when you're playing one because the male characters and the female characters look the same <laughs> and they all have really spiky hair and swords that are the size of the person carrying them and well you know what this is the game i know that established I know. that trope now so, that because this is my famed osmosis i do know that i i could recognize when someone's cosplaying as spiky magoo from final <laughs> fantasy 7 i would mm-hmm. i would be able to recognize where that's from but look, you know, you like what you like. You love what you love. I think that these games have a lot to offer people. I just never got really into them. And it's not like I played them and hated them. I did have a little bit of experience. I think my Final Fantasy is like the Game Boy Final Fantasy game, which is probably a really pale reflection of the series, but that's the one that I played. So the sort of turn-based, you're fighting a blob kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That I remember. Yeah, and that... And that basic combat structure holds through the series. We don't really need to talk about the gameplay, per se, because that's not the podcast's focus. Um, but for people who aren't very familiar with video games or, or maybe mostly know things like Mario, you know, one of the reasons I picked this villain is that most video games, uh, even bleeding into this era, and this game came out in fi- uh, 1997, you had a lot of games that were basically just, I don't know, jump over a bunch of shit, and then you jump over some more shit, and then it's over. That's Mario, and it's wonderful and entertaining, but there's no story to it. And the Final Fantasy games, this series in particular, was I'm sorry, really I'm sorry. There's no story to Super Mario Brothers. Well, not counting <laughs> the Tale Bob Hoskins of Brothers. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an Italian plumber got sucked into a pipe into a world of turtles. What are you talking about? No story. Right. But Final Fantasy games in particular. Um, were games that were much more about pushing a narrative. And in particular, fi- well, we got in America as Final Fantasy 2, 3, and 7. There's a bit of a screw-up in the numbering because there were a bunch of games that were only released in Japan. So the, these are actually titles 4, 6, and 7 um, that were enormous in really pushing that. And Final Fantasy 7 coming on the back of its predecessor, which was very well-regarded and successful. And in fact, it's probably my personal favorite in the series. But Final Fantasy VII's financial success can't really be understated. Um, It sold over 10 million copies for the PlayStation 1. They think that Sony says that they moved. I'm sorry, its financial success can't be understated? (laughs) This was a phenomenon of a game. It can't be overstated. Um, That's what I'm trying to say, right? Oh, you're right. You you pulled an irregardless. I I guess. Oh, oh, poor William Sapphire is going to have a field day with my poor grammar. But, like, Sony thinks they sold 6 million PlayStations alone just because people wanted to buy it so they could play this game. Um, well, you got to so, have a killer game. Whenever you have a console, you have to have a game that everybody buys the console just so they can play. You know? And this I did, was I that game. I, I feel like I did that with the 360. I remember Mass Effect. That was an ex- exclusive, you know, on the on the Xbox for a long time. So that definitely did it for me. So that's what this game was for the original PlayStation. It was absolutely the killer app. And it... Really, vol- because again, it was very story forward. It really put an exclamation point on the notion that no, we can use video games to tell stories that can be impactful or complicated or interesting. Um, and I don't think without the Final Fantasy games, you get there at least as fast as the industry did. Um, they're okay. a big part of that. And Sephiroth, who's our topic, I should mention that's his name. Sephiroth is the villain um, from that game. And he is an integral part of the game's success and and the story is and why the story is compelling. 
so before we get deep into this, you know, I want to talk a little bit about my history with gaming. Um, sure. And feel free to weigh in with your own. But when I hear, you know, this game came out in 97 and taught us that these narratives could be told, that feels a little bit like a console-specific interpretation because Lord knows I was playing the graphic adventures that Sierra and LucasArts were putting out. And I think of those as being incredibly story-driven and, you know, how many objects can you fit in your pocket-driven, but also very story-driven games uh maybe the final fantasy series taught us that we could do that in a console space but you know what i mean well there's no i, don't, I didn't think that that, that was game. alien to me as yeah. a concept in gaming well no it was there were definitely story-based games but none of them had hit a commercial grand slam the way this did I see. I and see. that i think was the why i wanted to point that out just that you know now you look at games like the last of us you know, some of these games that have come out and people have looked at and said, wow, this really, you know, had an emotional impact on me. This game sort of let everyone know that, like, no, no, you can do stuff that's more than just shooting aliens and, and you know, jumping through obstacle courses. And, you know, you can still make it worth the investment to develop something like that. There's an audience for it that's hungry. Yeah, I mean, modern game playing is so interesting because it's like, I just want to sit down on the couch, relax, and make agonizing moral decisions. <laughs> but that's <laughs> kind of what it's become. I mean, it really is... I mean, it could be a lot of things. Admittedly, there's different types of games, but these kinds of compelling, deep, rich stories are hardly unusual now in game playing. I, you know, I'll do a little plug here for... Red Dead Redemption 2, which I just completed. And that's a similarly expansive game experience. I mean, that game took a long time for me to complete, but I found myself moved in a way that passive entertainment can't really do to you. You know, I mean, there's something that is really sort of, there's an immersion that comes from when I push the button, the thing happens. You know what I mean? That's just different in your brain than uh, watching it happen. Suddenly you feel responsible for the outcome. You feel very connected to the character and their emotional journey. And that's something that really only interactive entertainment can do. You know, I think it's just that video games are a young medium. And it take, it's been taking the developers a while to figure out, well, how do I really use this interactivity to tell stories in a way that's meaningful? The same way you look at movies and like the first movies, it's just like, you know, train goes through tunnel. And it took right. decades before you get to Casablanca, you know, where right. before Cowboy someone can tell a story. camera, sun rises. Yeah, those were the first movies. Yeah. Right. And so similarly, you go from like Pac-Man to, you know, you start, this is part, Final Fantasy VII is a big part of that evolution. Um, so have I can ask you, I think. this docuseries, by the way, on Netflix? High School? I have not seen it. No. I've you will find it, out not- that so much more thought goes into these things than we think. You know, we say Pac-Man here is like, oh, what a primitive thing. But, you know, these guys had to invent things that we take for granted, right? And all art builds on itself. So Pac-Man does lead to Final Fantasy, which, of course, does lead oh, of to course. Red Dead Redemption. So it's interesting how these things go. One thing that jumped out at me, I just started watching it, but just the invention of the high score, just the idea of posting the high score. Someone had to come up with that. And the whole idea was, you know, you wanted people to come back and play again and try to beat their high score or beat someone else's high score. These are things that we just assume now are, well, that's a very, actually, that's an old type of gameplay. Now it's, of course, you know, I want to go back and see what happens if I can save my father from his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah. you know, these things, these things uh, have to be invented. So credit where credit is due. Right. 
Um, so let me just uh, spend a quick minute just to explain what a Final Fantasy game kind of looks like. One, we're doing seven. You don't need to know one through six. It's an anthology series. So the gameplay concepts carry over. The settings and characters are all brand new each time. But the way this game kind of plays out is these are – this is sort of like playing Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, with the video game system acting as Dungeon Master, presenting you with the scenarios, doing all of the math as you take turns, you know, casting spells or, you know, uh, waggling your sword at something. Your and sword if a, you're lucky. Which, yeah, which is all an attempt to sort of ape a Lord of the Rings style quest. And so that's where we find ourselves in this space. We're basically delving into what is sort of a hybrid uh, sci-fi and traditional fantasy setting where this takes place. So before we get too much further, I think the answer is zero. But Dan, do you know anything about Sephiroth before uh, we get going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about Sephiroth. Okay, so he's from this, uh, this like, feathery-haired world of, like, steampunks. <laughs> and, like, they're always going around, uh, <laughs> you know, looking for product. Uh, and uh, then Sephiroth shows up. No, all right. Um, uh, I... <laughs> Well, I knew some of what you said. It's going to sound like I'm just repeating you. I did know that the Final Fantasy series was an anthology series. Like, they had that weird movie that came out. What was that one called? That, that uh, Oh, uh, uh, The Spirits Within. Spirits Within. That's that Uncanny Valley movie. That and, like, it's Polar terrible. Express are, like, a vomitous double feature. <laughs> but it's not related to any of the Final Fantasies. Like, I know that because they're all kind of in their own sort of universe i guess are there any connections between them thematic or Easter, otherwise e they've put in some easter eggy type okay. connections but nothing really canon uh Isn't that to sort speak of what of? ended up happening to the legend of zelda series too that sort of became similarly kind of each one's its own <laughs> incarnation of link yeah they put out like this insane timeline that tries to explain when all the different zeldas take place it's not worth your time Right. It's just sort of a reimagining when, mm -hmm. when you sit down to a new one. All right. So there's an anthology series. Yeah, I, I don't know much about Final Fantasy VII. I know the aesthetic when I see it, and I certainly don't know about the bad guy. I'll tell you one thing I know, which is that this is the osmosis at its most osmosy. I listened to a This American Life. I can't even remember the topic of it, mm. but they talked about how this game in particular was like an incredibly emotional experience for like a disproportionate number of, I think they were specifically saying men, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was just game players, but that this game in particular was like a really formative experience. And like, it was the, you know what it was? It was specifically, excuse me. It was specifically the death of a certain character in the game. Yeah. We'll and get that, there. That's a big yeah, deal. And though. that is a trauma that these guys carry with them. Like, <laughs> They couldn't save her. It didn't affect me that way when I played it, but I recognized <laughs> it was a big swing yeah. in terms of game storytelling. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was, a, yeah, sort of shocking. And, you know, apparently a lot of players, it really stuck with them after the fact, which I think is fantastic. You know, I mean, that's what entertainment can really do. And when it happens in a video game, especially something in the late 90s, that's pretty impressive. So that's all I really know about Final Fantasy VII. I don't know really anything about the bad guy in it. All right, then maybe what we should do then is move into me uh, trying to get everybody on board here for, you know, if, you, if you've played this game, then you probably know this story well. Uh, and if you haven't, I want to do my best to kind of bring you into this world and try to get you to, to kind of understand, like, oh, why do people love this so much? What's the thing they connect with? So the best way to do this is to start by kind of setting the stage with what the world of Final Fantasy VII is like, because any fa fantasy setting is kind of only as good as, you know, the Middle Earth, 
that it takes place in. So Final Fantasy VII takes place in a world called Gaia. And one of the notable features of Gaia is that they take this concept of like Buddhist reincarnation that like you die and your soul kind of is, you know, leaves your body and eventually becomes part of some new life. And they take that and they make it literal, that there is a physical thing called the life stream, which is this glowing green, almost like a river of, of energy that is underneath the surface of the planet. And it, that it's that cycle is important to keeping the planet alive as it goes around. And there's places where like it bubbles through on the surface and you can kind of uh, tap into it. It kind of it'll this harden like, and crystallize. Hmm? To put it in terms we can all understand, this is like the mood slime in Ghostbusters 2. Yes, it is exactly like the mood slime in Ghostbusters 2. But it's a little <laughs> more passive. But it's just there. And it's an important part of the ecology of the planet. 2,000 years before the start of the game, the world is populated by a race of kind of elf-like beings called the Cetra. They're, you know, in, t- in tune with the planet. They are magical beings. And they drive they are... Nissans. Hmm? They drive Nissans. Yes, they drive Nissan Leafs. No, because <laughs> they're called the Cetra. The Nissan Cetra. Oh, did they have a Centra? That's the Centra, yeah. the Nissan yeah. Centra. I know. It's a slant bit. <laughs> oh, Okay. It, <laughs> Took me a Doug, don't to be get surprised. It. I'm going to be doing this all night. This is all I have for you. Right. <laughs> it's going to be this shit. bit. It's and okay. It's going to be We're... that thing sounds like this thing. It's going to be that right. all night. Okay. Get so he, so here's something we've kind of encountered before. So into this world, a meteorite crash lands carrying with it an alien being known as Genova. And Genova takes the form of a humanoid lady, but it is a shape-shifting, terrifying alien menace. Ah, and and be- to put this in terms everyone can understand, this is like Men in Black 2. <laughs> everyone? Who saw that? <laughs> uh, so evil Lara Flynn Boyle uh, <laughs> there it begins, is. To in- yeah, begins to infect the Cetra, begins to try and take over, and they quickly recognize it's a menace. The, it kind of ends in a stalemate with most of the Cetra being wiped out. Genova is quarantined in a, basically in a crater uh, at the northernmost reaches of the planet, but in stasis, you know, contained. And then the Cetra mostly evolve into modern day humans, and there's like maybe a handful of them left on the planet, if any. Mm. Uh, now we catch now, up. I got to a question: the- Does Ge- yeah. Genova is is it really quarantined, or does it occasionally go out to the beach? And <laughs> I mean, she Instagram. wears a mask. She's not crazy. <laughs> okay, she, okay. Yeah. She got tested. She got mm-hmm. tested, you guys. Right. But she's kind of like, you know, there's a mix of, there's Cthulhu, which we've done before. There's The Thing that we've done before. There's little, like, shades of that in, in this character. Okay, so this uh, is like a large, powerful force. And they can't even destroy it. All they can do is sort of put it off right. to the side for a bit. Take yeah, basically... They freeze it in right. uh, the right. north end of the planet. That's what they had They're, to do with the blob. Hmm? Yeah, that, that is like the blob. So that's the, the distant past of the game. Cut to modern era. And the the primary uh, political force on the planet is this is a corporation called the Shinra Electric Company. And they run the, – they basically are the government. They are – they have their own military uh, Orwellian type stuff. They are interested in uh, pulling this life stream out of the planet and using it for a power source. And they and these uh, are the good guys. These are the bad guys. I'm <laughs> this is Halliburton. This is you know right. this is Final right. Fantasy Halliburton. <laughs> so the pitch yeah. didn't take off. And they 
run a city, the primary city where a lot of the action takes place, called Midgar. Midgar is a, uh, a shaped like a double-decker pizza. There are uh, it's a circular city divided into eight sectors, and there's an upper one and a lower one. Uh, and so the lower one is like they never see the sun. There, it's like a slum. And that's where all the rich people. Oh, <laughs> right. <Just kidding. laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, this is all interesting stuff. It is definitely like its agenda is very clear, but I, that's not a problem. No, no. The, the, this is anime storytelling, so it, it's not trying to be subtle. It doesn't want to be subtle. It's it is swinging big every time. It adds a story element. Uh, and that's okay. That serves this th- the way that story is told. It's fine. It's not. It's not a detriment that it is. Hey, told that when way. you say anime storytelling, how would you define that? I think anime storytelling is, especially of this era, is largely defined by that kind of bombast. And think of something like Star Wars. Like Star Wars is kind of told this way. You know, it's just the Americanized or American version of it. Right. It's operatic. Is the best word I've heard used to describe it. Right. So good is super good and evil is super evil. And the yes. Death Star, you, it's huge, the size of a planet. These things are big, 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 big. Yeah, everything's yeah. big. It's not like so, Charlie Kaufman, you know, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. So 30 years before the start of the game, the Shinra company discovers the remains of Genova. And they mistake it for one of the Cetra. Uh, they think this is, you know, part of this ancient race that no longer exists. They don't realize it's actually the reason that race no longer exists because all that information was lost to time. So they start experimenting on it and they decide what they're going to do with it is they're going to use it to recreate the race of uh, ancients to allow them to better tap into the planet, one to kind of basically to siphon its resources because they're an energy company. That's what they want to do. And so they take Genova's cells and they, in utero, uh, inject them into uh, a pregnant woman who's part of the the science team. Hello! Uh, let me ask you, how long is this cutscene I'm watching before I've even started playing? Well, this game? is this is well, none of this is coming before you start playing. This is all doled out over the course of the game. Uh, I'm giving it to you this way because I think this kay. is an easier way to make it digestible. Okay, because uh, I was gonna say yeah. if I haven't gotten a chance to at least kill like a cave rat or something at this point. <laughs> no, no, the game starts almost immediately in media res, and we'll get to the start of the game. But I thought it made more sense to give you a little of this in chrono order, because otherwise it's going to be too hard flashing back and forward as this stuff gets doled out. Sure. Uh, but so that baby uh, who's injected with the Genova cells is Sephiroth, and he is immediately taken from his mother, uh, Lucretia, before uh, she even gets a chance to hold him. He's raised by the corporation and becomes the star member of their elite military unit called Soldier, all in capital letters. It's some sort of acronym. Um, but he's like I hope the, so. I hope it's an acronym. It better be. They never explain what it stands for because otherwise it's kind of <laughs> dumb. It's just Soldier. That's where we yeah. are. Uh, but he's the killing is killing machine in Soldier. He's, he's this right. war hero. He's a badass. Okay. So now's a good time to kind of get to where the game starts because where the game starts – we get very little about him for a while. The game is kind of wisely doles that information out very slowly before they actually have him show up. And what we know about him is he was a big war hero. He was part of this military unit and he's presumed dead. And uh, that's where we meet our heroes uh, who are a bunch of eco-terrorists 
under the banner of uh, their organization is called Avalanche. And when we first meet them, they are off to go blow up one of the eight re- uh, reactors in the city of Midgar because they believe that by siphoning – they correctly believe that by siphoning off all of this life stream energy and using it for electricity and such, they're killing the planet. And so let me ask you, they did are. they vote in the last election or did they just do this kind of shit? <laughs> I, I think uh, I think they don't have elections in Midgar. Okay. It seems to be okay. pretty- yeah, well, yeah. So <laughs> if you have an election, value it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you might it not got- have another one. President Shinra postponed it by having right. the Supreme Court. Yeah, there's no government as far as you can tell. It's just this corporation right. that runs everything. Sure. Yeah, definitely a, a dystopia for sure. Is this like cyberpunk or is it something else? Yeah, no, it's cyberpunk. Um, it's this weird melange of like you still have guys with like swords and they're people casting magic spells and stuff, but it's fused with this cyberpunk aesthetic, especially okay. in Midgar. Everything's right. really little, technological. It reminds me a little bit of like Shadowrun, you know, where there's yeah. some fantasy elements and cyberpunk elements going on. Yeah, Final Fantasy VI was very steampunky, and I think they took that and said, let's run with it and go a little farther and make okay. it more technological. So we meet our hero, our main hero. His name is Cloud, and Cloud is a former. His parents says he's were hippies. F- this is a Final Fantasy trope too that they give their heroes these kind <laughs> of uh, elemental names. So okay. his the, in six it's Terra, in eight it's Squall, and yeah. uh, I think yeah. it is my favorite Johnny Cash song. A boy named Cloud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Cloud says he has been hired as a mercenary, and he is supposedly a former <laughs> member of Soldier. That's a tough sell. That's a tough what? sell. Who, who, are we, who are we hiring as a mercenary? Cloud, Cloud huh? Okay. You better be good. Well, he is vouched for uh, by another member of the team who is uh, a girl named Daffodil? Tifa. Okay. Hmm? Sorry, what's her name? Tifa. T- Tifa what's is Cloud's... What's her first name? Anne? Ah, <laughs> uh, you did it. You you scam. <laughs> she's a ch- she's Cloud's childhood friend and she knows a lot of details about his backstory that he doesn't even remember. And so she's super important, but she's the one who brings him in and says, "Why don't you use him to help blow up this reactor?" Which they do. And over the course of the first act of the game, Cloud and this group kind of form their first the first part of the, what becomes their fellowship, quote unquote. But we learn that Cloud uh, grew up with Tifa and left his hometown because he wa- he was impressed by Sephiroth and like I want to go be like him. I want to go join this organization and I'm going to go kick some ass like my uh, hero. The irony. Yeah. The irony. Is it irony? Is that like because <laughs> yeah, they're Ross obviously going to be across? They're gonna they're gonna cross swords. They're gonna cross giant well, swords that uh, are the size of themselves. Yes. Well, you you got to have your protagonist and antagonist come together. Otherwise, you don't have much of but a But I'm story. just saying, growing up idolizing the guy that will ultimately be the climactic villain that you have to face, that's ironic. I think that's that's yeah. a line in the Alanis Morissette song for sure. <laughs> it's definitely 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. <laughs> it's like Final Fantasy Seven. <laughs> I remember that. Um, so among the other the, the people that are kind of recruited into this little fellowship of eco-terrorists is uh, a girl named Eris. And Eris is in actually the last surviving ancient. And the group finally, after some travails and blowing up a couple more reactors, catch they, a couple Pokemon. Cap, cap, catch it, gotta catch them all. Gotta, is there is there is there an element of that in this game of like collecting things? <laughs> yes, there's sort of. Uh, okay. Not not. I just yeah. want to say 
that is that has been a sore spot for me in like traditional like Japanese storytelling, which is like <laughs> the collecting of things. I don't know why that's so important. Why do we have to assemble all the things to do the thing? <laughs> These feel like ways to pad the narrative. So if that's and they in are. there. <laughs> So if that's in there, I think that might be one of the reasons. I was like, okay. So eventually they make their way to Shinra headquarters where they decide, you know, we're just going to go fuck shit up. And they now get there. They And a couple of interesting things happen. One, along the way, Cloud has been kind of like glitching almost. And he hears voices in his head. So we already know something's wrong uh, with this guy. We don't know what yet, but that's important. He uh, So they make their way to the top of the tower to find a couple of interesting things. One, uh, they get captured, and then mysteriously somebody opens all the cell doors for them. They get out, and they find this canister that says Genova on it, and all that was in there initially when you first see it is... Wait, wait, I know, pink. I know. Genova. Yeah, mm, a torso. Just a <laughs> torso, no head. Okay. But then they get out. And they're, when they leave these cells that have been mysteriously opened, there's this trail of blood. They follow the trail of blood. The Genova pod is now open, and there's a trail of shit leaving that. So the torso there's is gone. There's a trail of shit? Well, goo. Alien was, goo. I didn't, I didn't realize this was a, a German collaboration. Right. Uh. <laughs> they, get, they, they reach the office of the president of Shinra to find him stabbed through the torso with an enormous sword which is Sephiroth's signature sword and he's there uh and then poof he's gone and oh no uh, so they there's a a big uh fracas and a boss fight and they is uh, not with him and they escape the city okay and this is kind of the end of the first act we're finally out of the city and <laughs> they said and at this point this is like you're telling me a dream you had well it is hard <laughs> to yada yada, yada pass a lot of a 40 hour game is, this is all vital information. We're getting there. So this okay. is where they pull the I just try cards. to imagine, you know, who's the like, who's the listener that's just listening to our podcast for the first time. And know, having a fever dream. Yeah, he doesn't know this game and it's all shit coming out of canisters and CEOs being stabbed. Like, what's happening here? All right. So, end of, end but, of act one. Act so the key point one. is he's supposed to be dead and here he is killing the president. And we're all shocked. The we're president. All shocked. Oh, yeah, he's the CEO, but like, right. He's, like functional he's the also president. the president, right. He so is he's, the president, yeah. yeah. At this point, the group kind of finally pulls Cloud aside and goes, look, you su- you're supposed to know Sephiroth. What the fuck happened? Why isn't he dead? What's going on? And we finally because get Cloud. Because you are like a fanboy? That's why he knows him? Well, they supposedly were part of the same military unit together. Oh, I got you. They were in the same unit. Right. So now we finally get the first flashback where Cloud's going to say, here's what happened the day Sephiroth supposedly died. And so he said, look, we were we went back to my hometown of Nibelheim. Me and, and Sephiroth were, you know, they show them in a truck with them and a couple of, like, infantry scrubs heading off to town to investigate what is supposedly a bunch of monster appearances near this town. Sure. They get, they get there. Tifa is there because, again, this is her hometown, too. And she uh, guides them up into the mountains to where there's this Shinra reactor. And... During this kind of period, Sephiroth reveals a little bit about himself. One, he's kind of – at this point, he's kind of aloof. Um, he This is supposedly going to be his last mission before he retires. He's kind of tired of ah, war. Man. What aloof. He's got two days to retirement. You know, so he's not like a good guy, but there's nothing 
necessarily evil about him, but he is kind of like standoffish. That's kind of his personality before things break bad. So they get to the reactor and they find all of these like human like monster hybrids in like tubes. There's been like black science has been afoot. And he opens up a door and he sees this big canister with like this kind of creepy angel statue in front of whatever's in this tube. And it says Genova on top of it, which freaks him out because he says that that's my, all I know about my family is that my mom's name was Genova. He then goes back to the town where there's like this old dilapidated mansion that was used for research purposes. And he starts reading every book he can find in the place uh, over this long sequence. And he starts trying to figure out what the fuck is this? Who am I really? And so, he finally so so to break up this epic story, we have a montage of book reading. Yes. <laughs> Quick montage <laughs> okay. of book reading. But basically he figures out that he is a Frankenstein's monster. That he you right. know, he was this lab experiment. And he comes to believe that this that is Sephiroth, Gen- right? Sephiroth, right. He realizes, yeah. okay, I was experimented on. I'm this human Genova hybrid. And at this point, they still think Genova is not a threat. They think this is one of the ancients. And he, at this point, he goes insane. He burns down the entire town. Sure. And, Why not? That makes sense. Yeah. He's, you know, because he's, what I he's lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what he decides is, you know, one, I think he's trying to cover his tracks by burning up all the research in the mansion, but he is, he's recognized I'm not part of humanity. Therefore, I owe them nothing. And I can do whatever I want to them, and my goal is now to what he thinks is revive this long dead race and take over the planet. You know, I feel like he kind of already wanted to do that. If he came he, in there and this was enough to push him over, he was already thinking of doing it. Yeah, yeah. So he's and he goes back <laughs> up toying with some ancient race revival fantasies before this happened, right? So. Cloud comes out. He sees that the entire town's been burned to the ground, which he's not obviously happy about. And sure. Sephiroth just sort of walks off into the fire up the mountain back towards the reactor. Cloud follows him. Tifa follows him. They get there. Tifa gets sh- struck down by Sephiroth, not killed, but knocked out. And they confront each other, and he pulls the statue off of the Genova um, pod to see what it really looks like underneath, which is this terrifying like glowing alien torso uh with with head at this point okay and um they confront each other and then cloud says that's all i really remember all i know is he's supposed to be dead after that which is weird obviously there's something amiss because he doesn't remember what happened next so the game now shifts you're honestly i'm not sure what happened i don't know if i remember what happened leading up to it so right (laughs) Anyway, like you got just what you really need to know is he figures out he's a monster and says, I'm going to be a monster then. Right, right. right. See, how hard was that, Doug? All right. So the, so the group. <laughs> I warned you. I warned you off air that I was going to do this to you. <laughs> so now I can yada yada pass a lot of the game, which is pursuing Sephiroth across the planet. And you're just sort of seeing, you know, carnage that he's wreaked. And. He event you eventually find out that his plan is to use a kind of world-ending magic spell to summon a meteor to crash into the planet. And the his thinking is when you crash into the planet, this life stream stuff comes to like heal the planet's wound. And he says, I'm gonna be at ground zero. I'm gonna absorb all of that and base and become a god. That's okay. what I'm gonna do. 
So world that now we've got a world ending threat in play. We've got a real like villainous problem. Um, and honestly, it's the most compelling theory I can imagine for what the fuck is going on right now politically. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. There's your connection. Ding ding. Uh, we got Trump in there somehow. Yeah, maybe that's what he's trying to do. Maybe he's trying to help the virus so that he can somehow <laughs> become a god. I am as god. So your role then shifts because you've got this girl, Eris, with you, who's the last of the ancients. And she says, well, I can basically do a spell to counteract that. And, and maybe we'll all be okay. So they've they've got to get to this like ancient- Maybe, Eris? Maybe? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and this is they finally get to the point where she's supposed to be performing that spell. And she is, you know, she's sitting there, she's kneeling serenely, she's praying, and this is the moment you're talking about where Sephiroth basically drops out of the sky with yeah. his sword down and blam, right in now, his spine. Now, here's the thing. When you're invested in this story, you've been playing this game for several hours, and that moment happens, I'm sure it's deeply emotional. But when you just watch that clip online, it does not carry the weight. <laughs> no, it <laughs> does. To a random, it's, you know, to a random It's just like a guy going like, meow, boink, with his sword. <laughs> Yeah, and that's you know, but, but but look, hey, to 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 be fair, I was so moved by the ending of Red Dead Redemption too that I brought Jen over and I said, "You got to see this. This is art. This is beautiful." Right. <laughs> and then I made her watch it, and then she was like, "Yeah, you know, I can see how that's important to you." You know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. so. But I just think it's interesting, Doug. Before, before we move on, I can see you wanting to move on. I'm just saying it's interesting that like. You've invested so much in this. You're you're wrapped up in the narrative, and this means a lot. But it's right. Like, this is really, like now you, we're you now those like, hours and hours and hours of of experience for that. To, yeah, okay. I blasted through like three fourths of the story to get to this point because right. this is, I think, one of the defining moments for this character and the franchise and games. Because usually in a game like this, when a character dies, quote unquote, there's some quest where you find a way to bring them back. And for years after this game came out, people were trying to figure out there must be, you know, if there's I a way to do that. Yeah. Right. There must be some secret way to do it, to bring her back. And, the, you right. know, and there isn't to the point where like, even in like in Wreck-It Ralph, there is a spray painted on the wall. It says Aerith lives at uh-huh. one point. This is a, a long yeah, running Yeah, it's funny to me because that always happens even now in a game where there's like a tragic turn of events. You go online and there are people in like Reddit forums being like, is there a way to like not have that happen? To be like, do you know how much extra game they would have to invent? To branch <laughs> you know, that storyline? To make that happen? That, yeah, that's really unlikely. Yeah. So this was this was considered shocking at the time. That they would off a main party member and a character who we haven't really talked about her, but she's, you know, like a 16-year-old girl. She's really innocent and sweet. So you're you're killing, you know, the the darling of the of the group. Yeah, that's um, like taking a gamer's body pillow away from him. <laughs> cruel. Just cruel. So cruel. Yeah, so this is a def- you know, like I said, definitive moment for this character that he kills this this beloved member of the group. We then finally make our way to the northern reaches of the planet where you have been trying to get to. And you have the basically the magic stone that will allow the, him to summon this meteor. The, the, the Guga that makes it. it work. I knew it. I knew it. You was got a the MacGuffin. Like you found that you got to the MacGuffin first. Yeah. But you get there and you find that Sephiroth is encased in like this crystalline structure. And he takes over your brain and makes you hand it to him. (laughs) 
is <laughs> well, Doug. I think it's time for bed. Uh, <laughs> why is he in a crystalline structure? Because this is one of the twists of the game. Uh. The person you've been seeing appearing and doing all of these fantastical things is not the actual Sephiroth's body. What? What? You said it was. You I son don't. of a bitch. It's a you lie. Son of a bitch. One of the features of this Genova creature is that its cells are always trying to get back together. And so there's all these people out there that have been infused with these cells as part of the experiments. And so either the remains of Genova itself or these people can shapeshift just like she can. So she is, and Sephiroth have been engineering these people to basically morph into him, do these things, and then disappear. So this is the what's actually left of the real guy. You are there's basically a calamity that happens. Cloud gets kicked into the into the live stream and gets and wa- washes up on a part of the planet where For he's just there, in a I vegetative really state. Cloud gets kicked in the nuts. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. No. <laughs> so he he's in a vegetative state and it takes a while, but eventually you kind of get into his brain and you understand that one of the, the reason he handed over the thing when Sephiroth commanded him to is he's got this shit in him too. Yeah. He's so he's subject to it. And the he's reason he doesn't Sephiroth on his mother's side. Yeah. So what ended up actually happening was not the flashback that we saw was tainted. And that Cloud never actually became a member of this elite military group. He washed out. And he's one of these like scrubs that was along for that mission. And the real guy, uh, other character, was the one who confronted Sephiroth. He failed and Cloud in you know try, doing the best he could surprised Sephiroth by taking him from behind and tossing him in down into the reactor which is why he wound up in this crystal basically at the other end of the planet he got sucked down into the stream mm-hmm. why didn't he remember it wrong is it like when Brian Williams said he was in that helicopter that was under fire but then it turns out <laughs> that he wasn't was it one of those things where he just kind of remembered it wrong no basically Shinra takes him and does a bunch of experiments on him that messes with him. Okay. And so he he ends he ends up basically wiped of his memories and kind of form he mistakes himself for the other guy that was on the mission yeah. and kind of like grafts that onto his memory. So that's why Tifa as his childhood friend is important because she kind of knows a bit about who the real cloud really is and what's wrong with him. And so he what's kind of cool about him as a character is that you realize like he wasn't a hero. He wasn't anybody. He wasn't special. But he becomes special by sort of force of like believing in himself that he, you know, he, he can't actually go toe to toe with this guy who is light years ahead of him in terms of like skill and combat and, right. and fierceness. It's sort of the opposite of finding out near the end of the story that you are the chosen one. It's sort of like, oh, no, you're the opposite of the chosen one. But you got to do it anyway. You dog shit. Neo's right. dead. It's up to you, Dozer. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that, that's, I think, one of the cool things about the story that people remember is this idea of like, okay, I found, I thought I was this badass. It turns out I'm not a badass, but I've got to be a hero anyway and mm-hmm. take down this guy who I've been, you know, who has been responsible in large part for my misery over the last course of this game. And so eventually you, you make your way there and you, uh, down into the planet, you realize he is, Eris managed to cast the spell just before he, she died, but he's there holding it back. So once you defeat him, that will allow the spell to stop the meteor and save the planet. And which you're finally you do. allowed to stop playing the game. Yes. And you do. And then it ends on this weird downbeat note because it saves the planet, but the city of Midgar is destroyed. Ah. But, that's the, but that's the end. 
Okay, so let's talk so about uh, Sephiroth. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we haven't talked too much yeah. about the title of this podcast. So he's what very... I, what I, yeah, yeah, what do I need hmm? to know about him? Okay, so so the, the 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 main things you need to know. Obviously, he's you know a black science gone wrong. He's you know a Frankenstein's monster. Um, we've had lots of these um, over the years in in fiction. He is trying to attain godhood. He is not above sacrificing anyone on the planet. In fact, his goal is to basically destroy everyone on it. And he reminds me a lot of these villains we've talked about be- before because he has this discovery that allows him to completely detach himself from any responsibility or empathy to the other people around him. And like we talked about that with a lot of villains, that that's something that, that seems to unlock evil when you make that discovery. What specifically, which discovery? That, you know, if you, if you somehow can look at other people as not human, as like basically ah, walking, talking yes. mannequins, well, you can yes. do whatever you want to them. Well, this is the nature of, um, I, I want to say evil or where evil really lives comfortably. This is in the notion of contempt. When you can look at other human beings or other beings, depending on how you want to manifest your your uh, villainy, uh, as being beneath you, less than you, then it justifies a lot of really awful behavior. But the moment you see them as an equal, you can't do that. And actually, that is really relevant to our times. I, I, I've been thinking about this, actually. Side note, I've been editing for a little extra dough on the side a Christian podcast, <laughs> but uh, they're sweet people. They actually have a really nice mission, which is their daughter is bisexual. I think they have two daughters that are bisexual, to be honest, and their church basically uh, kicked them out, mm-hmm. and you know they weren't going to abandon their daughters, and so they really kind of reevaluated their whole belief system and, and faith and what does it mean to love and what is it you know what is god if god is going to tell you to like yeah it's okay to hate certain people you know and so their whole uh mission is outreach to other parents or lgbt youth and and kind of to reconcile that and spread a message of inclusion and love it's a really great thing but their last podcast that i edited was all about contempt this idea of contempt and it really doesn't gel right when you're in this this setting that's all supposed to be about this this font of love this unending source of love but you're allowed to hate you're allowed to have contempt just doesn't really make sense and it's kind of baffling to me that so many people accept that and of course the the reason is because it it uh, allows a patriarchal system of exploitation to thrive Uh, and human beings are telling you you have to do this it's not god telling you but anyway i'm sorry i'm rambling my point is that kind of uh contempt i think is the source of evil, and I, you know, we all have the ability to 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 tap into that. I mean, I, I, you're such a loving guy. It's hard to imagine you having contempt. For me, when I kind of scan myself, I go like, I really hate uh, cruel people, which is kind of a weird way of manifesting it. You know what I mean? But I think a lot of us are like that. A lot of us are like, well, if you're hateful, then I, you're dog shit. You're not a human being, and I can destroy you. You know, uh, it's a complicated thing. I don't really know how to get around it because it's sort of like that's behavioral to me if you're a mean or cruel person that's isn't that a choice like aren't i allowed to have contempt for you but anyway yeah. that's my rant on contempt yeah well you you used the word exploit and i think that is the watchword for this character um because th- th- i obviously don't have time to get into all the instances where this comes up as a theme in the game but it's very much about 
you know, you you exploit something in a negative way. You know, the way that this company exploits the planet, the way they exploit human beings by testing on them, the way you know all these different things that happen in this game are all ways in which people are being exploited, and eventually that is going to turn around and bite you. And Sephiroth is kind of the manifestation of that, of saying, okay, you people on the planet are basically, you know, worthless, cruel, heartless people. I'll just wipe you all out and start over. I'll just declare, I'll become a god, and I'll make my own planet. And there is, uh, there's something to that that I think the, 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 the tone of the game is fairly oppressive compared to its predecessors and, and some of the games that came after it, which are a little more whimsical. This is very much like the planet is dying, the people on it are mostly awful with a few, you know, notable exceptions. And, you know, is this even a world worth saving? And in 1997, this seemed like a bizarre fantasy reality. That's right. You just described every news story I've looked at in the last several years. Right. Um, okay, so exploitation. Oh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. When when people's morality derives from sort of, I mean, where does it come from, right? Like, what does it mean to be good or evil? This character of Sephiroth, you know, he is, when he loses a justification, he immediately kind of becomes evil. And I think that is sort of strange. You know, to me, we talk a lot about evil on this, pod, on, on this podcast. To me, goodness comes from a scene, a connection, right? It's an awareness. It's saying that we are bonded with each other or with nature. We are connected. We are as one. We may seem like we're separated, but we're not really. The spaces between atoms is, it's crazy, right? It's it's mostly negative space. So when you see that connection, it's easier to see how we're all in it together and goodness becomes kind of the more obvious, almost logical way to be. And I guess this is a character who saw his connection severed. Yeah, he does. Uh, he definitely sees that. You know, he the 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 motif here of this life stream, this literal living th- river of life energy that connects everyone, is dying in this game, and that you know that is a big part of it. In fact, one of the the um, more striking images when we first really get to meet Eris is she's in this ruined church, but there's a beam of light, and uh, and there's a little like spot where the floor is broken, and there's a handful of like beautiful flowers coming through that broken ground. And that is sort of, uh, I saw, what's that quote from Leonard Cohen that says something about like, everything is cracked. That's how the light gets in. Hmm. And I think I thought about that in relation to this game that, you know, that is a lot of what it's trying to say is that, you know, the world can be a shitty place, but if you let this light kind of come into it, you can heal things. And then the neg- the reverse image of that is what we get in Sephiroth, which is a guy going like, "Nah, just burn it all down." Um, you know, he's he's extremely dark and nihilistic. Even well, for that a is also book. a dangerous ethos, right? Things are damaged, things are ugly. Let's just destroy all of it. I mean, we're grappling with that right now. People I know kind of ask themselves if the world is worth saving. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a this world you describe in Final Fantasy VII doesn't feel that far away to me. So very interesting. No, and it's not meant to. You know, it is, you know, again, that's one of the things about this kind of operatic storytelling, right, is that, you know, when they're showing a planet in an ecological crisis, they're not being shy about saying they mean Earth. You know, they're, you know, we're ruining the fucking planet. You know, that's, you know, they are trying to talk directly to us in a blunt way because that's just part of how this story is told. 
Well, we should probably move on into our sort of set segments here, but uh, sure. that that's what strikes me about this character. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for individual worth and individual value, but when you feel that you as an individual are completely disconnected from anything else, I don't think that's actually true on any kind of scientific level and certainly not on an emotional level. And I think it's a really dangerous place to be. I think it justifies a lot of really ugly behavior towards other human beings and towards the environment. It sounds like that's what this game is really saying. Absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. It's pure nihilism from from him all the way down. Right. Uh, so for the moral alignment, uh, what do you think? Well, I don't know this character as well as you do. Uh, is he? Does he seek out to cause unnecessary suffering in people? I think he. Yeah, I don't know that he does. He doesn't seem to do anything that is like gleefully right. Uh, evil. It's tactical. He sounds kind of. He sounds kind of dead inside. And I think to be chaotically evil, you actually have to have a fire in you. It's just a really twisted one. Yeah, the the villain in Final Fantasy VI, uh, the immediate predecessor to this, is like kind of this cackling Joker like character who's right. awesome in his own way. And Sephiroth is very much you know the the yang to that yin. He's you know he's very laconic. He's you know very yeah. just dour and. So he is definitely not chaotic. That is the way that character uh, Kefka is chaotically evil. Sephiroth is not. I well, I, I, I tend to put him in lawful. Lawful. What is what? What is the order because, that he's following? Well, he is trying to basically begin a new world order. He wants to wipe the planet clean and supposedly bring bring back this ancient race. Which I guess, but I, I always think of lawful evil as being an existing order that you're adhering to as opposed to creating okay. a new one. Creating a new one, to me, bumps into neutral. It's neutral mm-hmm. on a grand scale. It's like genocidal, sure. apocalyptic neutral. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still like, you. if you're creating the order, that's your own end. That's not you adhering to some kind of existing law, you know? All right, I'll buy that. Okay. Sure. I, w- I win. You win. <laughs> I'm the best. All right. Uh, so now, uh, fan casting. Fan casting. Well, Sephiroth. Um, why don't I bring why, up a picture you while you're doing that? I'm gonna, and... Yeah, I'm going to bring up a picture of him while you're talking. Okay. So my pick for this, just so you know, who he, he's, there have been some voice actors for him, not for the original game, which did not have any voice acting, but there have been some non-canonical appearances. Uh, and then there was the remake of the game that was released this year. Yeah, who was Jones in that? Matt Jones, who are our guest from last time and an old friend of ours, he plays Bad a character called. Bad. He, yep, he plays a character called Wedge. There's an Easter egg in a bunch of Final Fantasy games. They put in two characters named Biggs and Wedge as a Star Wars reference. Ah, yes. And he All plays Wedge. All of us listening to the podcast right now know those references, I'm sure. Yep. So Biggs and Wedge are members of Avalanche, the eco-terrorist group. They do not become um, members of your party that you can actually play in the game, but they're they're kind of supporting characters for the first uh, act of the game. Okay. So that's who he plays. Anyway, uh, my pick, uh, thinking of like a live action Sephiroth, uh, would be Nikolai Coster Waldo, who played Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones. And uh, to describe mm-hmm. what he looks like, he's a he's kind of a tall, good looking dude. Yeah, I can see him here. Yeah, he's got this like shock of he like is long one white hair. hot lady. Look at yeah. this. Look at this fox he, here. Look at that. He's got a little light light beard. Yeah, <laughs> at least in this picture, he has a beard in that picture. Oh, usually, it's probably the re- it's probably the remake or fan art. I'm in oh, Google okay, yeah, right he, now. Usually, no, no yeah, beard. yeah. Let me describe. Uh, uh, it's uh, he's got snowy white long hair. Yep. He's got uh, some football shoulder pads. 
got a very long sword. Clearly, uh, he's uh, making up for something. And he's got some sort of uh, Clive Barker bondage gear. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's very long, silky hair, though. Yeah. The, the white, silky hair is definitely a big feature of the character. Why is that? Why are so many anime characters just like delicate, feminine creatures? <laughs> I don't know enough about anime to answer that question. Honestly, um, yeah. I know that no, I mean, it's, kind it's, of just, a, it's just clearly an aesthetic that has perpetuated. Yeah, I couldn't tell you why, but that is the aesthetic they're going with. It's just kind of, you know, slightly androgynous look. And look, I got to be honest, I've always thought this was sort of interesting, too. Here we are with no authority that can speak to this, but anime characters never look Asian to me. They always look either alien or vaguely European. And I don't know if that's like the markets determining that or what, but I always thought that was sort of odd. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just a very, it's a very distinct cartoony kind of style. And part of that is, you know, in, in the, in the game, the the technology at the time, you know, he's rendered as, you know, a pretty low number of polygons when you usually see him in the game. Uh, Occasionally in cutscenes, he looks a little better, which are like pre-rendered CGI scenes. Uh, like, you know, little movie clips. And then there's, you know, versions of this character that appeared in spin-off games and then the remake um, where they've been able to do it in higher fidelity. But the general look of the character remains the same, which is, like you said, this kind of leather-clad, black, um, semi-military, semi-bondage outfit, the big uh, shoulder pads, and then the white hair and the giant sword. Yeah, I mean, if I was, like my dad's age and I came in and this was on the screen, I'd be like, oh, who's this beautiful lady? (laughs) <laughs> oh boy! Oh, uh, that's my that's my dad. Is uh, I don't know who is that. Is it Rodney Dangerfield? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, all right. My casting choice is Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Great, done. <laughs> because because the character off. is Asian and. Uh, <laughs> I would therefore not be played by an Asian, but by Scarlett Johansson. By Scarlett Johansson, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't know if the character actually is Asian. That's the thing. These characters are all kind of just, there's something else. They're like from a different Yeah, that's a, a guy named uh, Tetsuo Nomura is one of the character designers for this game. And he's kind of, no, like, this is the where he, like his character designs start to go really in this direction. To the point where you yeah. get to like Final Fantasy X and it's just like all straps and buckles and I shit. Mean, and it's crazy. It's, it's interesting to me because I almost wish we had Lauren on to talk about this because this is like got to be some sexual awakenings, some confusing stuff going on. In some of the <laughs> young men playing this game, you know, these well, are they also, these are beautiful they cater, men. They also cater to the mainstream by like having Tifa have giant cans. So you know, there's sure, sure, there's something for everybody. Like, yeah, it's like uh, what if we made everybody a beautiful lady? It's a world where everyone. It's a beautiful woman. The women, uh, you know, they have giant cans. But other than that, everyone's just got silky hair and delicate features. I just think I think that's interesting. And uh, I wish we had somebody on to speak to that. But without. All right. Did you have a crush on any of these characters, Doug, when you were younger? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. No, they're rendered like, you know, they look like Playmobil characters when they're rendered in in game. Because, again, the technology at the time couldn't allow for much more. Playmobil's hot. Yeah. All right, uh, title fight. Are we there? Title fight. Yeah, let's oh, do this it. is exciting. Let's do it. All Doug right. specifically requested this track for the title fight. This is we this is one of the yeah some of the battle music from the game. So uh, in this corner we've got Sephiroth, and in the other corner Walter White. Ah yes, Heisenberg. Heisenberg. Uh, well, 
is one of Sephiroth's weaknesses magnets? <laughs> Not that I know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, what ultimately takes down Sephiroth in the end? Uh, fighting him till his uh, number hits zero. <laughs> What do you mean? Classic. Classic hero's journey. Um, right. It's a, it's a video game. You got to defeat him in game. So, right. uh, th- yeah, he is. Well, after you defeat him, you know, you feed his physical, like, godlike form, which is now transformed into this great, like, one-winged angel, like, seraph-looking thing. You do have one last, like, one-on-one battle with him, sort of in Cloud's mind, as you sort of, like, beat him down into the live stream. Uh, kinda, it's like a metaphysical battle that right. you win. Well, what so. are we meant to believe? Why does Cloud triumph over Sephiroth? Because he, you know, I think he he believes he can. Um, you know, that's the again. That's well, the big if that's the book criteria, then Walter White's got a real edge because he believes well, he can do anything. Th- this is what I thought about. You know, because Cloud is ultimately revealed to be nothing special. The only thing he's got going for him is he's got a good group of allies and his belief that he needs to do the right thing and and help. So I. Walter White, you know, again, is an ordinary human, just like Cloud ultimately is revealed to be. So I guess that gives him some kind of a chance. Now, granted, Sephiroth's got magic spells and world-ending shit going on and a giant sword. So I don't know how they really would fare in a one-on-one fight. I don't I don't think that the 52-year-old man with lung cancer has a great shot. <laughs> right. If it's just like button mashing time, Walter White's not going to last very long. No one's going to select him in the super smash brothers version of events here but you know we had spoken last week about walter white and saying that one of his advantages is that he thinks in kind of the immediate term partially because of and with science yes science right exactly uh but you know he partially because of his diagnosis and stuff i think he's just kind of he just needs to win this round so he's willing to expose himself and take giant risks and also his ego. He sort of just assumes that he can handle it every time uh, until the end, you know, spoiler alert again for Breaking Bad, but until the end, you know, it catches up with him, right? But even in that, he ad- achieves a degree of victory over his immediate problem by willing to sacrifice himself. So that always seems to be his edge to me whenever I imagine him, as I frequently do, in some kind of supervillain fight that that he's he'll 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 do the crazy thing, you know? The right. thing that nobody else would do. Um, I don't know how that applies to the Final Fantasy VII realm, though. It may be just yeah. be about brute force. I mean, maybe it's the science angle and say, you know, this realm is, you know, very much governed by a form of science uh, that is in play. And maybe he would think of a way to undo whatever Sephiroth is doing to gather his power. You know, yeah. that he would think of, think his way around it that way. Or is it... Magic bitch. <laughs> yeah. Does he just become a great magician? Well, does Sephiroth need to acquire like this stone? Is that what you said? That's important. <laughs> well, he's gotten it. Yeah, he gets it. He basically says, Hey Cloud, give it to me, and he just takes it. Okay, and that's so, what allows him so to summon the, White, the world ending meeting. Uh, Walter White in his lab conjures up a faux stone uh using his science knowledge and puts it there so that when Sephiroth grabs it he thinks he's got it and right at the moment of his greatest triumph Walter White's uh trunk opens up <laughs> and a machine gun pops out and right. takes out Sephiroth. Great. <laughs> so we'll give it to Walter White then. <laughs> Gets a little like uh, gremlins there at the end there. <laughs> Something, that music. <laughs> All right. That is the traditional Final Fantasy, you just want to fight music. So, there you go. You asked for it, Doug. You got it. 
All your right. birthday came early this year or late. When's your birthday? <laughs> it's in March, so it's very late. <laughs> very late. <laughs> All right. Uh, any last thoughts, uh, Dan, before we kind of move into admin in the end? Well, I knew I was going to come into this a little judgmental and derisive because that's my nature and I don't really know the subject matter. So I protect my own ego by saying it's stupid, essentially. But I... I don't really think that's true. I think that these stories, again, when you are connected to them, especially at a young age, they mean a lot. And I understand that. And that makes sense. And I have a hundred of those same experiences. And I certainly will be using uh, this episode as an excuse when we bring on the Crypt Keeper (laughs) later in the podcast. But uh, I thought we really touched on the themes that resonated with me when we talked about, you know, exploitation and feeling apart and all that stuff. Reminds me a little bit of The Invisible Man, too, in a weird way, you know, that sort of being disconnected from society and societal obligations. So that's that's what I pull from this. And uh, it's also just an incredibly successful game and series. And that in and of itself tells you all you need to know about its impact. You know, yeah, love it. I mean, look, what they decided to do a remake, which, and they haven't done that with any of their other games. That that was, and in fact, the remake that they made is part of a. I think it's going to be at least two, if not three, games because the remake only goes up through the first third of the story of the original game. They've they've expanded it and they changed it around. God, that's um, weird because when you were telling this story, it seemed so uh, concise and to the right. point. It's kind of no. crazy that they could expand that. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it's the you know I, I don't want to get too far into the remake one. I haven't played very much of it yet. Uh, oh, you have I played intend- a little bit of it, huh? What I have played think? a little bit. It's good. Um, it is good. And one of the things they do is you know part of it's fun for me and it's nostalgic because it is largely the game I remember um, in played in a new way. But they tweak just enough to make it dangerous. Like so, one thing they do is they bring out Sephiroth much earlier than he appears in the in the original game. Just to kind of tell you, like, oh shit, something's different. Why am I even seeing him now? Okay. And that I know there's, I know a little bit about what the twist of the of the game is, but essentially there is a reason they're telling you things aren't quite the way you remember them uh, from the original game. So I'm curious to see how that all plays out. But again, they felt well, it was worth doing, and that this character is a big part of why. What I like about this podcast is that you and I are able to generate an enthusiasm or tap into an existing enthusiasm for a wide variety of subjects, and it is fun for me to think of you really loving this game and loving this character because it's not what I would guess, you know, just off the top of my head. So it's kind of cool that you have this connection and this love. I do. You know, over a long enough timeline, I would want to talk about six as well because I think it's actually the better game and the better character. But uh, this one's the much bigger one and it's still, and Sephiroth is definitely worth talking about. Something to look forward to for our 25th anniversary of podcast. Right. Long time down from now, but you know, um, the, it, this still was, a, you know, a very big game for me, and as it was for a lot of people, and and it was a lot of like, you know, you, it's tough to encapsulate into a, you know, an hour long podcast what it's like to play a game that takes like forty hours to play. Of course, but it's a big time investment that you spend on this quest, chasing after this guy, and you know, going into way more detail than we could ever go into here. But you feel that emotional connection, especially when you start to realize, you know, this guy did a lot of terrible things to my character. Um, you know, he did a lot of terrible things to the people around him and he needs to, this guy got to go. Right. So, yeah, Yeah, it's interesting with games because you had this experience, you were there for it. It means a lot to you. And then you try to relate it to somebody else and you just can't. And it sort of becomes even more precious to you for that reason, because it's just yours. It's like, you've got no way to really, unless you find other gamers, other people who have played it and loved it. And whenever you do that, it always feels like, ah, 
my 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 clan, my kin, you know, we know that this is great. Uh, well, that goes so back to the interactivity that you mentioned before, right? You did so, it. You completed right, this quest. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You talk twenty people who love this game. They all feel like they were the one that did it. You know. All right, but we should uh, wrap things up here, Doug. Do we have any yep. final uh, admin stuff we need to do? Uh, just a couple of things. One, as uh, we said up top, if you like the podcast, please drop us a review at uh, Apple uh, iTunes uh, podcast yeah, reviews. That's the best place to do it. Quiet on the mm-hmm. review front. I'm looking at you, person who's listening to the podcast right now and hasn't left a rating or a review. So, wow. yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, uh, please uh, send us a message at Twitter at Podcast But Evil if you want to uh, talk to us about you know who you think would win in these fights, who you want to see. Yeah, and cover. I really want to hear from the Final Fantasy fans out there because Doug said that you were out there. So if you had an experience with this game or it meant something to you, drop us a line. Let us know. We'll talk about it on the air. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, just to give you guys a heads up as to what's coming, because after this, it's October, and that means Halloween. And so we've got four really awesome uh, Halloween-themed episodes coming. We've got... Which we've uh, decided up- to call officially our Festival of Frights. Hornica. <laughs> Hornica? Hornica. I'm just trying it out. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds more like like a Jewish porn thing. That's true. That's probably out there. Yeah. Did you know technically the name Sephiroth is like from, comes from the Kabbalah? Isn't that weird? Oh, wow. No, so he's Jewish, I guess. That's I funny because I know so much about so much Kabbalah. I yeah, me too. Anyway, um, so our characters coming up for uh, the month of October. We're starting off with uh, the Headless Horseman from Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Then, as Dan mentioned, we're doing the Crypt Keeper. My uh, Sephiroth. I can't wait to hear about all this because I, I this is a character I don't have much familiar with uh, familiarity mm-hmm. with. Uh, then we've got uh, uh, Pennywise, right? So, so all of our, uh, you know, we just felt like they were all Halloweeny. Yeah, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there's a lot we could do with October, but uh, those were the ones that made the cut this time around. And yes, yeah, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. Uh, until next time, gentlemen. To evil. Clink. Clink. Bigums, Reggie, Smalls, brought a new friend to meet you. These little guys are on guard duty today. Okay. 